there's no reason why these services can't be as good as your very best tourist attractions um, that you, you visit solely for a leisure experience and invariably pay a lot more for a, a lot less than you get on, on, on a scenic bus. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Waller, an author and journalist who specialised in transport for the last 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories and policy developments and interviews across the world of transport. And with me is my co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades studying policy developments in transport. So, Mark, what's on the agenda today? Hello, Christian. Well, for those of us that have been studying transport for decades, we've said many times uh, the next election will be the one where transport finally is the dominant issue. And for decade after decade, we've been proved wrong. And transport has never featured as a significant matter in general election campaigns. Perhaps the general election campaign of 2024 is finally going to be the one dominated by transport. And in fact, that's reflected in some of the subject matter we're going to be discussing in today's podcast. So, of course, we're going to update our, our listeners with the situation regarding HS2 and the government review, which isn't a review, or is it? And also the position of the opposition parties on HS2, very much at the top of the political agenda at the moment. We also have the reform of the bus network in Manchester, which has been implemented during the last week. One of the most significant changes, possibly the most significant change, to the bus industry outside of London in almost 40 years. And for something of a bit of light relief, we'll be looking at the Great Scenic Bus Journeys competition, for which we have uh, some very interesting content which we think our listeners will enjoy. And finally, returning to the subject of controversial infrastructure projects, we'll be looking at the report into the difficulties encountered with the Edinburgh Tram Scheme. Right, well, uh, Mark, uh, yes, it's a fantastic week to be uh, reporting on transport, and both of us have been scurrying around the country, kind of trying to keep up with uh, developments. And indeed, I've spent much of my time in uh, the studios once again. Actually, it's wonderful. The TV studios now want you back in the studio and not on Zoom because they think it's better, which I'm very happy about because it's much more fun. Um, and uh, HS2 has just been featured absolutely everywhere. So, Christian, what kind of issues have you been raising in relation to this HS2 debate? Well, I think it was a great help that we actually went to visit the HS2 sites uh, a few weeks ago because uh, that really gives you uh, an insight, as it were, into uh, the vast scale of this uh, enterprise. The fact that actually the first leg uh, really cannot be abandoned. You can't leave kind of a viaduct over the Colne Valley and 10-mile tunnels under the Chiltern and all sorts of other structures kind of littered around the area between uh, London and Birmingham um, and let them rot. I mean, it just is impossible. So the first bit has to be completed. I think that 
everybody recognises that. These would be like strange monuments in the landscape, wouldn't they, for centuries to come if they were not completed and actually yes, maybe, put into maybe use. Yes, maybe they'd be like Stonehenge, you know, incomprehensible to future future generations. You know, what 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 was all this about? What were they thinking? <laughs> so uh, that's going to happen. So uh, so that is what I called uh, the Acton to Aston shuttle. Um, something which uh, is beginning to catch on, actually. Um, but then you've got all these other bits. That, and I think inevitably I've been saying that uh, you can't do this without Euston. I mean, the idea that you can have the permanent terminus, you know, five miles outside central London at a station that isn't really built for it, as we saw when we, we visited it, not really kind of appropriate station as a terminus. It couldn't run many train services out of that. So I was really struck in the interviews you've been giving at how strongly you've come out for completion to Euston because to some people it does look like an easy economy to make, doesn't it? Just stop the uh, the system at, uh, at Old Oak Common. Yeah, but it's not uh, really feasible. In fact, Mark, you might be surprised that I'm saying that given I've been an opponent of the scheme the whole along that it has to be finished, but there's no point kind of you know, I've discovered they've spent twenty-eight billion pounds on this so far. You can't just kind of uh, abandon it. Anyway, so Euston has to be built, um, uh, and then of course the the, the issue over the Birmingham Manchester uh, leg. And now, again, one can't really see a way of not building that um, if, uh, as might happen, uh, Richie Sunak decides that it should be paused or cancelled it would be an enormous mistake because the whole point of the scheme is not to create the Acton to Aston shuttle, but to create a through service from London, this real bit of London, not Old Oak Common, through to uh, the north. And with, without that, one would think that, again, much of the, the, the worth of the scheme is, is has been wasted. Now, my view is that possibly in a sensible world, they ought to pause that section and really have a look at how to cut costs you know it's still been designed to 400 kilometers per hour why is that you know why don't you design it to 300 kilometers? why don't you make it a slightly slower and, and and cheaper railway you know are there other things that you can do you know all oh, the tunnels they're going to build on it and the viaducts necessary can you actually kind of have better alignment and and so on and of course, this the trouble is when you do this, they'll spend £100 million on a, a revised rate rather than getting in. I, I suggested in my rail column, which will, uh, will come out next week, that what they need is an Alistair Morton type figure. You'll remember Alistair Morton. Absolutely, a, a giant of yes. uh, infrastructure policy. But don't you think there's also a bit of a mistake in a way that the conversation is, is structured around... Birmingham to Manchester because the parliamentary powers are already in place to build the line to crew, aren't they? Absolutely. So, so they could just they could just at least do that um, uh, and then fit the rest out. The problem with that one, Mark, is that of course the the vital bit for Northern Powers Rail is the bit from Crew to Manchester. Of and, course, and yeah. They, and yeah. that's the bit they can sell to the public. So I think they have a real problem. But the other thing I've been talking about on this. It's the insane politics about how bad a politician Richie Sunak is, just in terms of common sense. I'm not even talking about party differences here. I mean, why raise this whole issue when uh, he's about to go to Manchester for their party conference 
and this is completely dominating the agenda. And then he goes on uh, BBC Radio Manchester yesterday and absolutely fails to answer the question and basically says, well, nobody really uses railways much, everybody drives to work and I'm going to fill in the potholes. And, and the interviewer uh, obviously kind of picked, kept on picking him up on this and, and embarrassing him about it. But just the politics of it are nonsensical. Now, I think if that was a scenario in, in the episode, an episode of The Thick of It, people would say it was a bit far-fetched. <laughs> but we mustn't uh, get so absorbed, of course, with the uh, wranglings of the governing party that we miss out what's happening with His Majesty's loyal opposition. As you rightly and presciently mentioned on our previous episode, Labour is getting itself somewhat tied up in knots as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it was inevitable that this would happen because... Um, they were going on about we're going to uh, uh, complete HS2. What does that mean? You know, do they reinstate the bit to Leeds, the, the Goldbourne link north of Manchester, the Euston bit? You know, what what exactly does that mean? And they're now uh, beginning to resile from that and say, well, uh, you know, we're 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 going to um, uh, you know look at it. Um, and we aim to complete it, but they haven't absolutely committed themselves to it. And are they going to Leeds or aren't they going to Leeds? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, will they wait to see the numbers or won't they wait to see the numbers? What's the level of commitment? And we had, we had the five mayors trotting off to uh, Leeds, which, of course, is no longer on it, uh, saying, you know, this has to be built. But, you know, who is going to pay for that? Um, what 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 precisely do they want? They want the Northern Powerhouse well as well. Um, and, you know, there are going to be budget constraints on this. I mean, you know, we are, we talk about billions as if there were millions, actually. I think, I think we've kind of slightly uh, forgotten that. So, um, you know, what will the Labour Party do, A, in the hustings, and B, when it hopefully and um, expectedly uh, wins the election you know they're, they're going to be in a very difficult position so um, at the moment all the difficulties are with Richie Sunak and the Tories but eventually um, they'll be back with Labour For our next item we'll stick with Manchester which seems to be the centre of the universe in terms of transport policy at the moment and of course with the Conservative Party conference coming up last week saw the introduction of a new form of bus franchising on the network within the city region, representing perhaps the biggest change we've seen to buses outside of London since the 1985 Transport Act. What's your take on this, Christian? Well, I've got quite a lot of history here because my first uh, transport book was actually called Stagecoach and it was the story of the uh, amazing rise and rise now something a bit of a fall actually since then of uh, uh, Brian Souter and his sister Anne Glogue and um, how they built up stagecoach from, from nothing. And what's interesting, what's relevant there, of course, is that stagecoach has been at the forefront of opposing this sort of change, right? Uh, and I remember having discussions with uh, Brian Souter when I was uh, writing the book, which, I, which was published about 98, um, about the fact that he absolutely hated the idea of cross-subsidy. Like, this was his whole thing. 
he, he thought buses are not networks, they're just individual routes, and if the individual route doesn't pay for itself, then it has to be scrapped, which I thought was amazing for somebody who kind of rooted in transport like that, and I never understood that. And I think that what, the, what this change means, and this is, as you say, incredibly important, it means that local authorities, authorities can take back the whole idea of route planning, of setting out a, a whole system uh, for their local areas, integrating them uh, with other services, with railways and trams, which of course you weren't allowed to do under the 1986 uh, uh, legislation, um, and uh, make a really big difference for services in their, their local areas. And, you know, why the Labour Party never managed to do this in their 13 years uh, in power between 97 and 2010 um, was because they got bogged down. And I remember John Prescott moaning about the TV boppers in number 10 that he was kind of always going on about, that was stopping him doing things. And somehow, you know, that new Labour was somewhat in hock to uh, the whole idea, the neoliberal idea that things had to be provided by the private sector and so on. And now we've got the Tories who have actually created legislation that allows the re-nationalisation or the re-urbanisation of local bus services. And of course, uh, many of the services will continue to be operated by private companies, as indeed they are in the London franchise network, but on the basis of contracts awarded by a public authority to operate a route, a network, a frequency and fares that have been set by that public authority. So we won't see the end of private sector bus companies, but they'll have a different relationship. Yes, and I don't even know why they were so opposed to it, because buses are, are, you know, a difficult business and this takes away the revenue risk from them. Of course, it means they can't make huge profits, 20 or 30% sometimes on some routes they used to make. Um, uh, but it's, it's a more sensible uh, kind of strategy all round. And I think it goes to one of the key points that I always return to when, when thinking about transport policy, which is that it should not be about profit. You know, that, you know, people say, oh, well, will this bus route pay for itself? Well, it might not pay for itself financially, but the whole issue of externalities, the whole issue that, you know, it might in, enable people who don't have much money to get a job. It might support local businesses to, to ensure that they can uh, uh, attract workers and, and uh, people buying their goods from a much wider network and so on. It, it's a no-brainer that transport is a service. And I think this is what this is all about. It returns the idea that transport is a service rather than it has to be operated uh, in a profitable way. When I've lectured in the past uh, on the 1985 Transport Act, okay. which is a subject... Sorry, 85, um, not 86. 86 it was implemented, right. 85 Act. Right. Uh, the, um, uh, when I've lectured on that, uh, I've described it as, in fact, perhaps one of the lower profile but actually one of the most revolutionary policies of the Thatcher era because outside of London almost literally the network was wiped clean and started again from scratch on the basis of what the market thought was deliverable with the local authorities stepping in then where they could to provide franchised subsidised services. But that was more revolutionary than what happened in electricity or water or gas 
or even telecommunications. Yes, it was stimulated by Nicholas Ridley, who was the transport secretary at the time, who, who actually thought that it would be a good idea that individual bus drivers would be able to own their bus and they'd run their buses kind of where they wanted. Or drive would. a bus for a couple of hours a day yes. alongside another job that they were, were uh, yeah, doing. Absolutely. That was part like, of his like vision. Taxi, like taxi drivers do. And it, it, was, it was a whole insane thing. But why has it taken, you know, as you said, nearly 40 years uh, to reverse a policy that was uh, clearly not working? And it, it, it so demonstrated that it wasn't working by the fact that in London we've had kind of uh, bus services maintained and indeed improved and bus passenger numbers have, have uh, been maintained. Because, of course, London was regarded as too hot to handle, wasn't it, for these Absolutely. reforms? And, and they wanted the red buses to maintain. We remember there was a little while while they allowed kind of different coloured buses in London and Steve Norris, who was then a transport minister, put a stop to that. We're having red buses uh, in London. So they had red buses under kind of public sector control in London because uh, they didn't dare change it. And the rest of the country uh, kind of uh, had to make do with this deregulated uh, system. And if anything, there was uh, showed sort of contempt of the politicians towards people outside London, it was that. And of course, we're, we're watching with great interest what happens in Manchester, Greater Manchester, but there are other city regions and indeed other local authority areas uh, which are trying to use the same powers, uh, legislated for, curiously as you say, by the Conservatives, to bring in similar regimes. So I'm sure this is a subject we'll be returning to as those networks are rolled out in other parts of the country. Meanwhile, both of us are going to Manchester, so we'll hop on some Beeline services um, and uh, tell you what it's like uh, next time. Can't wait. Christian, would you like to tell our listeners about the great scenic bus journeys competition? Well, I, I met the uh, inventor of this idea uh, the other day, Alex Warner, who's a, a long-time transport consultant and the like, with particularly interest in, in buses, actually, but he also does railways and whatever. Um, and he uh, really has this wider idea of making bus journeys kind of something as part of people's travel experience that they might actually enjoy rather than being the thing oh god we've got to take a bus so he's uh, invented this whole notion of kind of great uh, scenic journeys um, and to stimulate that um, he had the rather interesting idea of launching a competition for uh, Britain's uh, best uh, UK open top bus uh, journey and here he is talking about it I'm at uh, St Pancras Station uh, talking about buses actually with Alex Warner who's had various consultancy roles across the industry and buses are in fact one of the forgotten aspects of uh, the transport industry because nobody really ever pays much attention to trying to get more people on buses and yet more people travel on buses every day than on trains so Alex um, I understand you've got a really good scheme to kind of promote the idea of bus travel as uh, a fun thing to do rather than the thing that you have to endure. Absolutely. So we called it Great Scenic Journeys and we set up a one-stop shop um, portal website uh, to promote with social media and a credit from a customer service perspective. Um, 
scenic transport routes across the UK, not just bus, but also preserved railways and, and mainline railways, and, and also across Ireland. And um, the, the proposition is, is around how do we raise awareness amongst customers of the fact that, in many respects, the journey is the attraction in itself, be it a bus journey, a train journey, or whatever. And um, we focus, as you know, Christian, my background is very much in customer experience. And um, part of the Great Scenic Journeys family are transport operators and routes that will have passed a level of accreditation through our customer experience reviews. So we've only got the best um, part of the Great Scenic Journeys collection. But aren't you taking the mic on a bit, really? Because, you know, nobody really wants to go on a bus. And to market it as a kind of fun thing to do, is, is that not an impossible task? No, it's, it's, it, it's, it's not impossible at all. I mean, we have 180 routes within our family and the majority of them are, are hugely scenic, if not stunning. We've got the Land's End Coaster, the Atlantic Coaster, Jurassic Coaster, Skegness Seasider, the Lakes and Stagecoach, countless routes across Scotland. Um, buses actually take some of the most beautiful routes uh, across the UK and Ireland and, and, and beyond. And, and what better way to relax and look out the window than upstairs on a bus where the driver takes the strain from you. But um, uh, aren't you making use of, of local buses which you know might be unreliable i mean how do you how do you ensure that people manage to find the bus and uh, that it actually runs well i mean part of the service we provide is to help bus companies improve the propositions so we will stress test them in advance to test the punctuality the reliability the onboard product the drivers the marketing uh, customer relations pre and after the event and we then report back our findings, our scores. It's a bit like the scores on the doors hygiene factor. Each route gets a rating and then we work with the transport operators to help them improve the service so it's more reliable and the quality is stepped up. There's no reason why these services can't be as good as your very best tourist attractions um, that you, you visit solely for a leisure experience and invariably pay a lot more for a, a lot less than you get on, on, on a scenic bus, particularly at the moment when most bus journeys only cost two pounds. Uh, so I understand that uh, you've got this great idea of uh, having a competition to find uh, the best open-top buses. I mean, tell me a bit about open-top buses, because one could imagine, I've seen them in London and the like, but are there lots of open-top buses around the country? Oh, yes. So uh, we set up the UK Open-Top Bus Cup for 2023, sponsored by Ticketer, and um, we had 32 teams or routes uh, at the beginning and um, the final um, the final is just about to take place it is so and so watch this space and of that 32 I think there's probably about 45 um, open top bus routes across the UK and they're hugely popular um, I mean literally I was in Scarborough last week and it was it was standing room only um, across the whole bus and all sorts of people from different walks of life and backgrounds be it locals through to tourists um, I mean we've got the Eastbourne sightseeing bus in Eastbourne obviously which goes up Beachy Head um, absolutely overwhelmed with happy Japanese tourists that, that flock to that, that route I think it's something to do with a, a, a pop group in Japan that was filmed at the top of Beachy Head but you know they, they're putting on extra buses every day to deal with demand um, But isn't it reliant on uh, the weather? 
Well, it is, but an open-top bus route, I mean, most of these have closed bits at the front upstairs, and obviously downstairs is closed, and some of these open-top routes are, you know, they, they last only half an hour, 45 minutes. They're a great filler in the day when the rain's coming down or it's drizzly, and the kids or older people are, are bored and they've run out of things to do. Some of the time they go on an open-top and they think it's the last resort, and they actually then realise it's the best part of their holiday. So, yeah, the weather hasn't been very kind to us in July and August, but still the number, you know, the numbers are, are pretty good and, and, and they're climbing um, and, and I think next year will be a bumpier again because the awareness is getting there and the good thing about open top buses they're very innocent um, innocent British pleasures in many respects very traditional um, and, and there's no better way to spend time with family and loved ones or you know having an ice cream on top of a bus looking over the sea um, so talking more wildly why, widely I mean um, how do you think that we could remedy the situation with, with, with the buses being so forgotten? I mean, the, the whole industry is very kind of fragmented. There's nobody really leading it. Um, uh, the number of bus routes have declined by, I think, about 50% since 2000. I mean, how can, how can we rescue the bus industry? Well, it's got one thing going in its favour, and, and, and everyone needs to realise that. It's the whole environmental piece. You know, I, I've got a young family, and they're very, so I've got teenagers and uh, daughter in early 20s, and, and they're very fixated on, on the environment in a way that we never were. Um, and they find it very appealing not having a car. It's too expensive, it's too much hassle trying to pass the test. So actually, they, they get on and off the bus quite a lot, but we don't make it easy in terms of provision of information. That's something a great senior journey is we're, we're, we're trying to do. Um, and so we've got to kind of make buses more fashionable and there's bus companies like, they use you know, Stagecoach, Transdev, Blazefield, um, Trent Barton, and a number of others that you actually look at a bus and people go, I wasn't expecting that. You know, they've got lovely le leather seats, um, tables, um, really friendly drivers, great branding on the inside and the outside. We've got to promote destinations, give people reasons to travel, create momentum, go out in the community, talk to attractions, talk to event providers, make sure everyone in the community knows about the bus that gets to their destination. So I think that's really, really important. And we've got to raise the customer service. And, and that has been happening over time. So I Do you think, think so? Do you think so? Yeah. Do you think people have, because uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than the kind of, you know, when you get on the bus and the bus driver grunts at you and kind of, uh, you know, you, he doesn't really help you with the destination and, and so on. I mean, is that improving? I think it is. Now, I've been running mystery shopping programs for bus companies for about 12 or 13 years now, and rail companies as well. And I've seen a real considerable um, upturn in the performance of drivers, the friendliness, even things like, I always test the, you know, the last impression. You know, when you get off the bus, you say, thank you, driver. Do you get a grunt or do you not hear anything? Or do you get a fulsome thank you, have a nice day and advice? And that's been getting a lot better. So despite the fact there's a huge recruitment challenge uh, uh, to find bus drivers, you'd actually think, well, maybe the service would be worse because are they being less scrupulous and meticulous the bus companies when they recruit i think actually quite the opposite i do think it's getting better and i think that the standards have been raised by bus companies focusing more on more on that and that's something that we do help with our tourism training our delight the customer driver training um, so I, I think it's improved and, and and i think in many respects it's it's 
it's as good as, if not better than, frankly, the experience you get on trains and, and, and other service providers. Um, but we've got a long way to go. You know, we can't be complacent. And a big thing for me is that is that drivers on these scenic routes or routes of interest must know that that people are traveling for the first time or maybe the only time and, and they'll be unfamiliar and they'll want to know more and more about the product and the places they're going to so they do have to heighten their level of performance and and, and self-awareness on these routes I, I do expect maybe that bus drivers might be required to say well here's this uh, mountain here here's this valley here or whatever or uh, you know become a bit of a tour guide or do you think that would be too much to expect well they are they are on a number of routes so we worked with the uh, first bus in the Exmoor coaster and they've got a pool of drivers I think about 11 or 12 on this journey and literally they stop the bus at a scenic place they walk upstairs and they literally tell the customers on board about the history of the area some ghost tales and, and interesting tidbits um, other buses have commentary as well so um, I think you probably have these open top buses you've probably got about a third have commentary probably two-thirds of the drivers take it upon themselves to to basically help out in, in that in that way and we trained uh, brand personality training for the bus drivers in Devon and Cornwall first and and that's part of their remit and and they're really keen to do that really proud they, they want that and they like the variety but you're well. training them to be yeah offer better customer oh yeah delight the customer training we, we train managers right up to managing directors in how do you manage customer service particularly across leisure propositions on a day-to-day -day basis what's the governance you put in place the vision the strategy etc how do you inspire and motivate your your people but um so that's worked but yeah the drivers that they're keen to give more they're really proud of the history and the sights and sounds on their journeys okay well well thank you Alex just to tell us where where do you find your website and how do people access these bus journeys and services yes so it's www.greatscenicjourneys.co.uk I'll say that again www.greatscenicjourneys.co.uk Oh, well, thank you for coming on and overcoming the noise at St Pancras Station. But, you know, on this podcast, we like recording things kind of uh, at transport hubs and it gives a kind of uh, the right feel for our talk. So thanks a lot, Alex. Thank you, Christian. Uh, since recording that uh, with Alex, they've actually announced uh, the winner of uh, the Open Top Bus competition, which was actually uh, carried out by uh, people voting online, um, which... Uh, so it was a, a people's vote, and I, um, uh, and so uh, the the winner proved to be the Toon Tour, which um, and I'm reading here is uh, the Go North East City Sightseeing Bus Toon Tour, which is a circular hop-on hop-off service which takes in the sights of Newcastle and Gateshead, and features commentary from local Metro Radio superstars Stephen Karen. Now, look, one might kind of say, oh, God, you know, they're just trying to, to sell the impossible. But I think this is a great idea. I think the whole idea that buses are the things that you don't go on. Famously, Mrs. Thatcher said, you know, that if you go on a bus at the age of 30, you're a loser. Um, and, and I think this is a, a very good effort to, to both improve, get the bus companies to improve their offering with kind of decent information and provide you know drivers who welcome you on board and actually on these open bus tours actually give you a, a, a nice running commentary so all power uh, to Alex and his uh, initiative at the top of the podcast we were talking about a controversial infrastructure scheme HS2 but there are other controversial infrastructure schemes 
And Christian, you've been looking into the saga of the Edinburgh trams and have even been on Radio Scotland talking about this. Uh, yes, indeed. And um, because I was doing the radio show, I actually read through uh, some of that 800-page report. Luckily, it's got an excellent uh, uh, executive summary. So this is the report that was produced by uh, Lord Hardy uh, after uh, the scandal of that Edinburgh tram, which uh, was originally supposed to cost around uh, 500 million and ended up costing... Uh, 750 million for a truncated bit and eventually they built the extra bit just opened recently uh, and the whole thing came to over a billion pounds so twice uh, the original uh, price um, and uh, this report uh, which I must say is a very thorough job and it's it's one of those inquiry reports which you really think is worthwhile now originally it was going to cost 13 million but they, they've knocked it down to 8 million but I think that is money that has actually been pretty well spent if people read this report. And indeed, I think those people who uh, are working on HS2 could well learn some of the lessons. So what, what went wrong? Well, um, initially they passed on the building of uh, and, and the whole oversight of it to a separate organisation. This was Edinburgh City Council, passed it on to this organisation called TAI, Transport Initiatives Edinburgh always in lowercase, God knows why. Um, and uh, initially, Ty did some design work and preparatory work and, and that slipped. Um, and uh, Ty rather didn't kind of come clean over about that. Then it all got worse because the SNP uh, briefly were in control of a minority uh, administration in Edinburgh. And they were, they had stood on a platform of abandoning the scheme, but they were not allowed to do so because the national uh, Scottish government didn't allow them to do so. But they kind of undermined the scheme. And Thai, by then, was a sort of operation almost on its own and started withholding information from the city of uh, Edinburgh. And then worse, started lying about the information and actually uh, started not reporting properly about what they were spending. So there was this kind of dissonance between the city council and Thai. And in a way, there's some parallels here about um, uh, HS2, in that HS2 is run by this company, HS2 Limited, that actually provides very little transparency information about what it does. And the government's supposed to do that, but the government withholds figures. So it, it's... There are some parallels here about working through an arm's length organisation. And originally, Thai was set up because this was supposed to be funded largely from a congestion charge in Edinburgh. Of course, the congestion charge uh, never happened. Because they're always so controversial, aren't they? And, and there was a referendum. And if you wrote the, if you ask people, do they want to pay more tax? They generally, they say, generally no. say no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, that was one of the problems. And then it just got worse and worse with, uh, um, you know, this organisation, Thai, literally uh, went rogue. It, you know, it, it started the contracting process before the design was finished. So there's all sorts of project management issues. Um, and uh, there was the utilities, moving the utilities, which is always a huge cost in uh, these tram projects that was subcontracted to a separate organization and, and they were supposed to move all the utilities and that didn't really work because they had to have a relationship with the gas people electricity people and so on um, and 
essentially the whole thing got out of control and they, they then chopped a bit off and they finally finished it. But of course, what is ironic about this, Mark, is that people love the trap. So often this is the case with these controversial schemes, yeah. isn't it? Once they're finished, even if they're late and they're over budget, once they're operating, people they become really hugely it. popular. And so uh, eventually, although it didn't initially run to Leith, which was the bit, so it ran from uh, Edinburgh Airport to the centre, and then they decided, well, we're going to build a Leith bit anyway. Um, and they did that at, at an extra cost, which, as I say, brought it up to a, a billion pounds. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you'd started out at the beginning and said, this is going to cost a billion pounds, would it have ever got permission? Probably not. But if you now say to Edinburgh people, well, are you pleased with the tram? They probably say, well, yeah, we love it. It's important. And it's taking cars off the road. And, and uh, you know, we, we think it's a great asset to the city. So, um, you know, it, it shows the difficulties about uh, these mega projects and the fact that they inevitably uh, get into trouble. And actually, it also puts Crossrail, now that it is a line in perspective, because actually that started at 15 point something billion, ended up 19 billion. Well, that's only 20 to 25% kind of rising costs. It shows actually they did rather well, despite the fact it was three years late. And of course, nobody would say, we don't want Crossrail Elizabeth Line now, which is you know carrying uh, absolutely huge numbers, 750,000 a day, sometimes a million, you know, absolutely extraordinary success. So um, it is worth getting these built, but HS2, I've argued in the radio programs, I've, I've talked about this, I think HS2 has kind of gone somewhat out of those limits. It's so expensive and so over budget and such a mess uh, in terms of the organisation of it that, you know, it begs bigger questions about this. Whereas I'd say the Edinburgh tram, worth doing, Crossrail worth doing, HS2, big question mark. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Well, when at the beginning we said that, you know, transport is in the news, well, it just it can't get off the news at the moment, as well as HS2 Limited and the tram and, uh, and the Manchester buses and whatever. We've now got Richie Sunak saying that he wants to stop councils from being able to willy-nilly impose 20 mile an hour limits and low traffic neighbourhoods and ULES uh, zones and whatever. And this is fascinating because all this has come out of the fact that Labour didn't quite win the Uxbridge by-election. And uh, you know, I've written a couple of pieces in the garden which are uh, on my website about this, the fact that Actually, I think he's making a big mistake, you know, so he's uh, definitely you know, taking out the cudgels, going on about the war on the motorist and uh, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's hilarious that whereas some Labour, uh, some, sorry, Tory councillors uh, are opposed to these 20 mile an hour zones, in Cornwall, I heard on the uh, Radio 4 Today programme recently that uh, in Cornwall, they're implementing uh, a 20 mile an hour zone in all the towns and villages in Cornwall with the support of local people and it's immensely popular. Um, and that's a Tory councillor doing that, a council doing that. So it's rather extraordinary that this Uxbridge by-election victory of the Tories just by under 500 votes is being seen as the way forward when in fact it still represents a huge swing uh, against the Tories and in a seat that was very difficult uh, for uh, Labour to win. Yes, ULEZ was an issue, but it 
surely making that a defining issue across the country in an election campaign, I think is absolutely insane. And so in a way, maybe losing the Uxbridge uh, by-election will prove for Labour an absolutely big boon in the general election. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.